you to join me this morning in the Word of God to the book of Nehemiah, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Uh, you'll find it there. We want to go to Nehemiah chapter 6. <clears throat> So Nehemiah chapter 6, reading from verse 1. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, that there were no breaks in it, although at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages, in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sabalat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your heart. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it shall not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Now these three uh, little books, Esther, sorry, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, and Esther, are what are called post-exilic books. That is to say, they are written about that period whenever the people of Judah uh, were coming out of exile, out of that 70 years of Babylonian captivity. The Medo-Persian Empire had overcome the Babylonians and were much more favorable uh, to the people of Judah, and so much so, in fact, that they were allowing a, a phased return back to their homeland. And this phased return uh, would take place over a period of approximately about 100 years. And it was in a three-stage uh, phase, as it were. Uh, first one was by decree of Cyrus. And under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and Joshua, the priest, 50,000 Jews, which was a remnant, uh, came back to their homeland to rebuild the temple. And uh, the prophets during that period was Haggai and Zechariah. And then sometime later, Ezra, who was a, a, a priest scribe, he also brought back a, a small contingent, another little remnant, back to the homeland uh, to help. And then the final return was uh, 13 years after Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, uh, uh, allowed him to come home 
And uh, whenever he got home, he and Ezra joined forces together uh, to rebuild the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And Malachi, he was the prophet during that period. Now, the little book of Esther, uh, it is set between the first return and the final return. And, and it gives a, an idea of what was going on there. And it particularly is set uh, in the Scriptures for us to remind us of the faithfulness of God towards His people and how He kept them during all of that period so that they could come back again after the captivity and exile was over. And so that's the, the background to the story. Now, Nehemiah was called to build a wall. That was what he was called to do. Uh, it consumed him. This was something that highly motivated this man. It inspired him. It challenged him. This was his reason for getting up in the morning. It was his dream. It was his goal. It was his aim in life. It was his vision. It was his calling. What's yours? What wall are you attempting to build? What's your vision? What's your dream? What's your goal in life? Perhaps if you're a mother, maybe it is simply to build a godly family. Maybe that's the wall that you feel that you're supposed to do at this point in your life at least, to build a good godly family. And from when you get up in the morning to when you go to bed, you are endeavoring to put into your children uh, something of godliness, something of, uh, of integrity and of character and reputation. Uh, you just want your children to be the best they can possibly be in life and succeed in life, but above and beyond that, that they become godly young men and young women, that they grow up with a sense of godliness in their lives particularly in the world that we live in today. That's no easy task. Uh, and so maybe if you're a mother today, maybe that's, that's your goal. That's the wall that you want to build, a godly family. Maybe others of you, it's a godly marriage. And, and it's a very noble aspiration, isn't it, to have a godly marriage, uh, to be able to, uh, to, to live as husband and wife for the rest of your lives, putting God first, uh, and no matter what else may come along in life and whatever you may do, that your whole priority as a husband and wife, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what your goal is. That's what your uh, dream is to do. Uh, maybe others of you, it's maybe to build a career or a business uh, that would be uh, glorify God. Uh, the, you know, that something that would be wholesome and good and right and, and that would be a blessing to others and a blessing to you and your family, but above and beyond that, that would glorify God, that would be good for the kingdom of God, that somehow or other, some way through it, that the kingdom would be expand, extended and that God would be glorified in that. That's also a wonderful aspiration to have. It's a good wall to build. It's good to do all of those things. Uh, maybe... Others of you, and hope that all of us to some degree or other, uh, would simply want a good, solid, spiritual life. That's a good thing to do, isn't it? To have a good, solid, spiritual life. And so every single day of your life, you're putting another brick into that wall. You're, you're building and building and building and building a good, solid, steady, 
faithful spiritual life so that you can look back at the end of your life and though you haven't got everything right and done everything right, but as, as far as you know, as far as you can see, looking back, you say, Lord, I attempted to build my life a good, strong spiritual base uh, that again would, would glorify God and be a blessing to others. Maybe it's to be a leader in God's work. Uh, maybe that's your goal and that's your vision. Maybe God has put that into your heart and uh, you're in the, the process phase of that and, and you're doing all that you can do to build your spiritual life and to build godliness into your life so that, so that that leadership role will become something of importance to you, something that will honor God. So there's, there's all kinds of walls that we can build. Nehemiah's happened to be this physical wall in Jerusalem, the wall around the city. Now it's amazing. No matter what wall you're attempting to build, particularly if, if if at the end of it you wanted to glorify God, it's amazing how all hell will rise up against you to try to prevent that happening, to try to stop you building your wall, to try to circumvent it, to short-circuit your plans, to get you to quit, to give up. And this is exactly what happened to Nehemiah. And that be this morning, just the time that we have today. Let me show you four ways that the devil comes against us, that he tries to stop us building our wall. First of all, he will try to distract you. He will try to distract you. He will always try to get you to do lesser things. He doesn't care what you do as long as it's not the main thing. He wants you to get your eye of the ball. He wants you to get your eye of the big picture and onto smaller, lesser things. Maybe legitimate things. But it distracts you from what you really ought to be doing. Here's an example. It says in chapter 6, we read the verses together. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain or in the valley of Ono, what they thought to do me harm. Now the enemy will adopt this tactic to try to get you to do, stop doing that one big thing in your life, the thing that consumes you, the thing that's your passion, the thing that you feel that God wants you to really do and to get you to do something less than that, something much lesser. <clears throat> So here they are, they're in Jerusalem, in the city. And their enemies want them to go down into the villages. They're in the heights of Jerusalem, and he wants them to go down into the valley of Ono. And of course it was a ploy, wasn't it? Because as long as they were in the valley of Ono, as long as they were dealing with lesser things, then the wall would not be built. Ono was 30 miles from Jerusalem. That was a long way on foot. And it was deliberately chosen to put space between what he was doing and to get him where they wanted him to be. <clears throat> and the enemy will want you to put space between what God has called you to do, what your vision and your goal in life is in Christ. He wants you to put space between that and what he wants you to do. It seemed quite innocuous to go and talk and to reason and to debate 
But Nehemiah knew what the thing was. He says, they sought to do me harm. So I sent messengers and I said, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? He was smart enough to know this was a tactic to dissuade him and to get him distracted from what he wanted to do. <clears throat> Remember just uh, some uh, months ago, we went into depth and detail in the story of Mary and Martha and how that whenever Jesus and his entourage came into the home, as they would often come into the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and how that when they got into the home, Jesus, when they sat down, he immediately began to teach. And we know that Mary uh, sat down at his feet uh, because that was assuming the position of a disciple listening to the rabbi. And how that Martha in the kitchen busying herself and she came in, she came bursting in in the middle of Jesus' teaching. And she was angry at her sister and said, Lord, you know what's she doing here? She should be in helping me. And Jesus says, no, Martha. He says, you're overburdened about much serving. But Mary has chosen the good part. For now, right now, this is what actually you should be doing. You should be sitting at my feet right now. This is, the, this is the main thing. It's not for me to eat. I can eat any time. I'm sure Jesus was hungry like all the rest of them, but that wasn't his main goal in life, just to feed his belly. As long as he had people to feed the Word of God, that's what his goal was, and nothing would stop him. And Martha just didn't quite get that at the time. Well, she got later on, but not right at the time. And so the enemy wants to come in and, and to distract us and, and sidetrack us and, and get us to procrastinate and, and to hold back and hold up anything but do the thing that we should do. Uh, I was thinking about this just last night, way back over in Genesis chapter 24. Do you remember the story uh, how that Abraham sent a servant out to find a bride for Isaac, his son? And how when the servant went out and he, he gave God a you know, thing about the camels, who, who'll come to the well and, and water my camels, that'll be the one. And of course, uh, Rebecca comes and she was beautiful and she said, uh, you know, I'll give you some water, but I'll water your camels also. And he knew this was the one. And, and then he asked her who she was and what family she came from. And lo and behold, it was Abraham's family as well. And so everything was just knitting together lovely. He knew it was the will of God. He knew this was the one. And he gave her some beautiful gifts and then went back to her home. Uh, she introduced them to her parents and her brothers and sisters. And, uh, and they all talked together and they all agreed this was God. This was the thing to do. God was in this. God had led and guided and so forth. And then they stayed overnight because they had come on a long journey. In verse 54 of Genesis 24, And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten, and after that she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. Now you see, Eleazar was not stupid. A few days, or oh, oh, maybe ten days, and he realized that maybe after 10 days, it could be two weeks, it could be three weeks, it could be a month, it could be three months, because they wouldn't want to let her go. And the danger is that she wouldn't want to go. Oh, God was in it. 
This was the call. This is what they were supposed to do. But they were putting it off. And so they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent, her, sent away Rebecca, their sister, and a nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebecca. She said, I will go. She was making sure that she was not going to be kept back from doing what God wanted her to do. She had a wall to build now, as it were. She had the promise of God, and she had the will of God to carry out. Away over there in Luke chapter 9. In verse 57 of Luke chapter 9, <clears throat> Now it happened, as they journeyed on the road, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Oh, that's, uh, again, a lovely aspiration. It's a noble thing to say and to want to do. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so he was putting out to this man, well, that's wonderful, I'm glad to hear you saying that, but let me just tell you a little bit of price you may have to pay if you're going to become a follower of mine. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Uh, was Jesus being unkind there? No. You have to understand that in Eastern countries, even in this day, that most times when somebody dies, they're buried before sundown. You know, it's not a three-day affair like here. It's not a two-week affair like England. It's almost immediately. And so when he said, I want to go and bury my father, it wasn't that his father had died because if that's the case, it just a matter of a few hours no, it meant his father was getting old and, you know, and who knows how long he would have to live. It could be a month, it could be a year, it could be two years, who knows? Just, but just let me deal with the family situation first. You know, my dad's old and, you know, and there's stuff to, there's a will to be involved and, you know, there's land to be. This is, this is really the gist of what was happening here. And Jesus said, no, let those who are dead, let those who are spiritually dead, let them bury the dead. But you, you come and follow me right, right now. So he was testing him. And then it further goes on to say, And others also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Jesus said to them, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So it means more than just going back and saying, uh, You know, I'm off now. More than that, it's a bit like the story we just read in Genesis. This is going to be a long farewell. And the danger is in the long farewells, the pressure would come on to stay, either from the family or from him to stay. You know, there's many a young man, there's many a young woman could be in ministry today, could be in the mission field today, except for their parents who didn't want to let them go, who were frightened to let them go. Would to God they had to let them go because there's no safer and better place to be in the will of God should it be in the other side of the world. But often parents are scared and frightened and, and, and often controlling when it comes to letting go. 
All of us know that to some degree or other when our children are growing up. And, you know, when the first day at school, you know, you feel for them, you know, you're more frightened about it than they are. And, you know, it's just, you're protective. And that carries into the, to, when it comes to the will of God too, because we're always protective of our children. And when they come and they tell you that they want to go into God's work and, and you say, well, you know, I, I thought maybe you're going to have a career and you're going to go into business, you're going to do this. And you go, no, I'm going to go into God's work. And, well, I don't know, it's, uh, it can be tough. And I want to go on the mission field. I'm not too sure the cannibals will eat you and, you know, and all this stuff. And so there's a wall to build. And we've got to build it. And even though the enemy may try to distract us, we've got to build it. Secondly, he will try to distress you. He will try to distress you. We see that, we see that there where you see the threats there. Uh, with this letter, it's reported among the nations. And Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you're rebuilding the wall. Where do you think the rumors started? Started with them. They started the rumors that you may be their king. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will come to be reported to the king, so come, let us therefore consult together. See what they're doing here. Trying to distress them. Try to make them feel. Try to put the view across that they have a different agenda here. I'm going to report you to the king. That was going to cause some distress to them. Because remember, the king had allowed them to come back here. You know, they didn't want a bad report coming, going back that they were traitors. And so the enemy will find ways to try to distress you. He'll lie about you, try to ruin your reputation and, and, and your, your character and all the rest of it. In, in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, here's another thing that he does. He try to make you weary and tired building the wall. In verse 10, then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. And so we see here that, that there is a, a tiredness and a weariness. And then it goes on. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near came, then came, they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall, not the openings. And I set the people according to their families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your houses. So while they were building, they were battling. Anything that's worthy to build, you're going to have to battle to do it. You're going to have to battle to do it. Whether that's a godly family, whether that's a great marriage, whether that's raising kids, whether that's running a godly business, you are going to have to battle to do it. 
because there's an enemy out there of your soul who will not like it one bit. You're going against the grain of this world. You're going against the very spirit of this world when you do this. And so the enemy will come in and he'll try to prevent you and he'll cause you to be weary and tired at times because you're not only building, you're battling. These people were battling at all fronts. It seemed to be the enemy was all around them and at any moment they could come in. I mean, it wasn't a very pleasant time for them. And I mean, the work was tough and it was hard because the old broken down walls that had been burned, there was heaps of rubbish and they had to dig out of that the best stones and clean them up and refit them. This was no easy task. And nothing you'll ever do in this life that's worthwhile to do, particularly for the kingdom, will not be easy. And you will be fought and you'll have to build and you'll have to battle at the same time. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul said, But we have this treasure. This is verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So you see, Paul didn't get it easy, did he? I mean, Paul enumerates so many things that happened to him. And all he was doing was building a wall for the kingdom, serving God the best he knew how. But there was an evil one out there who did everything in his power to come against him and to stop him trying to build the wall. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For indeed, when we came, this is verse 5, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. You say, do you mean that the Apostle Paul is actually saying there was times he was afraid? Yes, that's what he said. Inside were fears. See, sometimes we, we, we make these people out to be superhuman. He's just flesh and blood like us. Brilliant man, wonderful, great godly man, but boy, he had his troubles too. He had his fears as well. And so he said here in verse uh, 5, Our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. And so, he will try to distract you. He will try to distress you. Rome wasn't built in a day. And if you're building something that you intend to last until Jesus comes, it won't be done in a day. And it won't be done easily. You'll have to fight and battle for it. But at the end of it, to the glory of God, we're going to build the wall. Amen? We're going to get it done. Thirdly, he will try to discourage you. Try to make you feel that what you're doing is a complete and utter waste of time. It won't last. It won't work. It's too weak. In chapter 4 of Nehemiah, 
Verse 1, But so it happened when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? He said it very sarcastically. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Well, insults, scathing remarks, everything they could possibly think of to try and discourage the builders. Who do these feeble Jews think they are? Do they really think that they can build this wall? Do they really think that out of all of that mess, they can build something great around this city? Do they honestly think, when you look at all the burnt rubbish and stones, do they honestly think they can get anything out of that to build anything with? And of course, all of that was to put into the minds of the builders, hey, you're wasting your time. This won't work, even if you build it. And then they said, even if they do build it, even if a fox goes up, it'll be so shaky and frail, it'll just knock it down. So the enemy comes along and says to you, listen, even if you, even if you build it, It'll collapse. You know, you build up a godly family. It'll, you know, their children, they'll just go bananas. They'll go ballistic. They'll just, they'll just collapse. Waste of time. This day and age we live in. You know, trying to build a solid spiritual life, waste of time. You're going to be assailed with all kinds of temptations and troubles and problems. You'll just quit sooner or later. And even if you do build something in life, it won't be much. The first thing comes along, I'll just knock it down. And, uh, and all those Thoughts comes into your mind because the enemy whispers them to you. Sometimes he shouts them at you. And the whole thing is to simply discourage you, to get you to hang your head down and say, what is the point? Why bother? I was telling somebody the other day, this, I mean, this is a rare thing to happen to me, but in fact, I used to be able not to believe. I used to hear other, when I was a young pastor, I used to hear older pastors talking about, oh, I was going to quit, I was going to give up, I was going to throw the town, I was going to... And I thought, goodness sake, what are they talking about? But then I lived a while longer. <laughs> and then a few years and a couple of decades passing ministry, and I thought, yeah, I know what they're talking about now. And I remember one time getting the stage where I was on the verge, right on the verge, of saying, that is it. I've had it. Can take no more of the nonsense. And it wasn't for my wife sitting there talking sense into me that night. I was ready to just say, that's it, I'm finished. I don't need this anymore. But she sat me down, as wives often do, to their husbands, and talk a lot of sense. And thankfully I was in a position where I was ready to listen. And that's why I'm still here today. I know what it's like to get discouraged. I know what it's like to feel that everything you built has just been a waste of time. Nobody cared. Came to nothing. But listen, God sees it. God sees it. It's what God thinks. That's what really counts, isn't it? 
Hebrews 10, you don't need to turn to this, Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has, Clifford, great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Years and years ago, I used to work in a factory making tires. And you were on bonus. And so every day you come in, you had to make so many tires. And, and your foreman set a target for you every single day. And most days you sailed through it and got it, but there was days, boy, it was tough. You didn't feel well, you felt sick, or you were tired, or you were weary, you were exhausted, or your machine kept breaking down, and just all kinds of things to try to stop you making that target. Uh, and our foreman, who was a great guy, he used to come around behind you, and, and you had a little sheet up above your head where you, you ticked off every tire you made. You know, 150 today, and 200 another day, and he, you know, he would come around, and he would look at it. And, you know, and if, if your pace was slowing... And you hadn't quite, he knew you were struggling that day. He used to stand behind you and he got his big hands and he rubbed your shoulders. You know, you know like a massage. You know, like, a, like if you're a boxer and you're in the corner and the old trainer comes over and he's massaging your shoulders and he used to look at you and say, hang in there, kid, and keep punching. <laughs> that, was his, that was, hang in there, kid, keep punching. In other words, keep at it, keep at it. And sometimes that's all you can do is hang in there and keep punching. Because you can't see how you're ever going to get this done. And everything's screaming at you. It won't work even if you do it. It's going to fall. And you've got to hang in there and keep punching. And that's why in verse 9 of chapter 6 that Nehemiah says, Oh God, strengthen my hands. I need your strength to do this. And there's times we've got to cry unto God, God, strengthen my hands. I need your strength to do this because I can't do it without you. And then finally, he will try to not only distract you and distress you and discourage you, but he'll try to demoralize you. Try to demoralize you. You know, there's one surefire way of being demoralized, and that is when you think that you're doing this all by yourself. That you're all alone in the battle. You're building and you're battling. And you look around and there doesn't seem to be anybody there beside you. Just you. And all of us has been there at some point or other in our lives, haven't we? And it's demoralizing. Let's face it. It's a struggle when that happens. Let me show you this. Chapter 4. So they're building, they're battling, they've got the spears, they've got the swords. Verse 19, Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. And at the same time I said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, stay at night in Jerusalem, that we may be on our guard by night 
and working party by day. So neither I or my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. Here they are, they're on the wall, and they're spread very thinly. So thin, in fact, that they had to have a special signal if the enemy came Somebody had to blow the shofar so that everybody could rush into that area to help. But at the minute, they looked, and they're on their own. I remember years and years ago. Oh, and I'm talking many, many years ago. This was a way when the Ulster Defence Regiment was first formed, way in the very early, early days. And it was a bunch of people like myself and others, a lot of farmers, didn't know very much, ill-equipped, ill-trained. Talk about Dad's army. That's what we were called, and to some degree, it was true. Well, you get an old farmer who only ever shot a shotgun, and he's got a high-powered rifle in his hand, and he treats it like a shotgun, you are in serious trouble. You keep the right side of him. And remember that we used to have to go out sometimes to to key points, these were places that had to be guarded night and day. And oftentimes we would come on at, at night time and we would take over from the Royal Marines or we'd take over from the Parachute Regiment who were fully trained, fully fit, fully equipped professional soldiers and here's Dad's Army coming to take over. That was a joke. And I remember... Several times, this is a way, way, way out in the country. It's a great big, massive electricity, big station that fed almost all of the old Balamini area and all that. And we were out, and there was a perimeter set around this, and there was these sangers, these little tin huts all around it, and you had to go in there by yourself in the middle of the night with your wee rifle, and that's it. And over there in the distance, you could see the lights of the electricity station. And away, you could hardly even barely see the next outpost. And you were, and if ever you felt vulnerable and on your own, it was right there from 2 in the morning to 5 in the morning. And not only that, there was a, a lot of sheep in the area, because this is the way out in the hills. A lot of sheep in the area, and there was flares set around the place so that if somebody come, a flare would go up. Of course, the sheep doesn't know, and it walks into the flares, and the flares go up, and I see when those flares went up, your heart rate zoomed. It nearly jumped out of your chest because you didn't know, is that a sheep or is this the real thing? Am I going to come under attack here? Because you're on your own. And we had so few go out with us, we literally were on our own in those huts. It wasn't two by two, it was one by one. And you were glad to see daylight because every shadow and every little noise and every rustle of the trees, <laughs> the hair rose in the back of your neck. <laughs> Do you feel sometimes you're all alone, you're battling and you're building, but you're on your own? You feel discouraged. Nobody cares. Nobody knows. Nobody wants to help. Well, that's the way it can seem like. Demoralized, discouraged, distressed, distracted. Remember Elijah, 1 Kings 19? 
Remember how he had won the great battle on Mount Carmel and then when Jezebel threatened him, he ran. And he ran all the way down to Beersheba. He couldn't run any further. He was at the end of the country. And then when he got there, he ran away into the middle of the desert. Couldn't get far enough away from that horrible, wicked woman. Never mind that he'd killed 400 prophets with a sword as this one woman was just he, just, he just ran. When he got there, he was tired and he was weary, and the angel came and gave him something to drink and something to eat, and then at one point he went into a little cave, and the Lord comes to him and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? <laughs> I mean, some, sometimes you read these things, if it wasn't so serious, it'd be funny. Can you imagine the Lord coming to you physically and saying, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And of course, he was going to tell him. And he says, Lord, <laughs> this is only me left. Can I paraphrase? Do you not know there's only me left? I alone. I'm the only one who stood up for you. Nobody else, just me. And you're wondering why I'm here? And they want to kill me? I'm paraphrasing, of course. But that's what he felt like. The Lord had to remind him. He says, no, it's not just you. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have 7,000. Kind of makes you wonder where they were. Well, Elijah was up there facing it on his own. Because that's what he thought. There's nobody else. There's just me. Nobody cares enough. Nobody's got my vision, my goal, my dream. My objective in life. Hmm. Demoralizing, isn't it? Well, Elijah, he was really, really, really demoralized. And the Lord had to come and he had to touch him again. And he had to encourage him again. In Hebrews 12:3, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Failure all alone. How do you think Jesus felt on the cross? Where was his disciples? Apart from John and his mother there, where was the rest of them? Peter denying him. Judas sold him. Where were the multitudes that were healed? Where were they that day? Talk about feeding on your own. Talk about being demoralized. The Lord knows all about it. He's been through that valley. Hebrews 6.15, speaking of Abraham, it says, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Thank God he obtained the promise. In Nehemiah 6, and we'll close with this. Verse 15, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days, and it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this, was, this work was done by our God. <laughs> now the tables are turned. 
Now it's his enemies who are disheartened and discouraged because they could not stop him. And the wall was built and the wall was finished in record time in 52 days letting us know there's an end to the thing. If you keep battling and you keep fighting and you keep building and you keep working, there will be an end of it someday. You'll get the job done. And your enemies who try to discourage you, they'll be the ones who's disheartened. Their heads will drop. Their shoulders will droop. But yours will stand tall because you have finished the work that God's called you to do. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning for the people of this house, for those particularly who have been discouraged, demoralized, distracted. Lord, I pray for them today. I pray, God, that you will uphold them in the name of Jesus. Lord, that your anointing, Lord, that your blessing, Lord, that your favor, Lord, that your inner strength will come upon them. And Lord, that they'll feel and know and understand, Lord, that what they're doing is worthwhile in the kingdom of God. And that no devil and no demon and no individual, no weapon that's formed against them shall prosper because this is the heritage of the people of God. Lord, bless them today. Strengthen their hands, O God, I pray. And let them leave this house today knowing, Lord, that you are in control, that nothing takes you by surprise. And no matter what enemy rises up against us, Lord, they'll flee before us seven ways in the name of Jesus. So we thank you, Lord, for this word today. Lord, put it deep into our hearts. Lord, we will not quit. We will not give up because God is going to build and help us build it in the name of Jesus and it will be finished. Lord we'll have our godly family. Lord our marriage will be safe. We'll raise up Lord a godly life before you. Lord we'll have that business. That dream will be fulfilled in Jesus name. Hallelujah. And so we thank you Lord for this and for your honor and your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord.